Hello and welcome to Titanium Talk or TI Talk, whichever one we decide we're going to call this. Um, my name's Jason Neen. I'm a freelance app developer. Been working with uh, Titanium for the last six, seven years. Um, and I've also got on here Brenton House. Is it House or House? It is House, just like a house. Okay, Brenton House, who's one of our titans. Um, and uh, the idea is, is that we're going to be doing a uh, hopefully going to be doing these as a regular occurrence, maybe every couple of weeks to talk about titanium and accelerator and uh, mobile in general and tips, advice, hints and things on all things titanium. Uh, Brenton, why don't you tell us about yourself and your background? All right. I am a mobile developer. I've been doing mobile for probably about the last five years. It's so primarily focused on using titanium and accelerator before that, mostly backend development. Uh, a lot of .NET API development, which really helped out a lot with going to mobile, understanding how everything talks to each other. So I've uh, been doing software development, development probably for a um, little over 20 years. So I love it. Yeah, my background actually was um, .NET as well. I didn't go down the PHP route. Um, we... The first version of our company, uh, so my company name is Bouncing Fish, and the first version of that ran from about 2000 to 2009. Um, and basically, we were Microsoft. We did, you know, it was classic ASP originally. Uh, classic ASP, Visual Basic was my background. Um, did some C Sharp and then did some .NET stuff when that came out. And we were, I remember actually buying the boxes of software, you know, the Visual Studio boxes, <laughs> uh, and it, installing the CDs or DVDs or whatever they were at the time. And um, we were all developing. I think we were actually developing with a pre-release at one point, we were developing with a pre-release version of .NET because I think we were using Visual Basic or something, or Visual Studio, Visual Studio whatever it was. Um, and yeah, I remember, I remember those I, I remember, days. You remember the pre? You had the pre-release license you could get, where so you could develop yeah. your stuff. And get, you couldn't actually supposedly run it in production yet. Felt like you're pretty special, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when did when did you start? Um, I think I started twenty. I think I started twenty ten with Titanium. I think it was either two thousand and nine or two thousand and ten. Uh, and it was when the first, it was when it was Titanium Developer. So it was that little application on, on, uh, OS X that you installed and then you, you coded in whatever you coded in and you, you, you built it through the Titanium Developer app. Is, what sort of, what, what sort of timing did you start? So I think my first exposure to is around 2011, maybe a little bit after that. Uh, and I did it. I was working with mobile while also still doing .NET and the API side. Yeah. Uh, kind of built up um, to where I could um, start doing it full time. And now I, I haven't done a lot. I still obviously have to work with APIs, but I haven't done a lot of APIs um, work now. I've kind of just been focused on the mobile now. So I got in a little bit after some of you guys <laughs> at the, the original titanium builds and some of that, but um, I've, it's been nice to see it grow, and wow, it's really grown a lot in the last year or two. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I think when I started, I was trying to play around with um, Xcode and Objective-C, and I couldn't get my head around Objective-C at all, coming from a Visual Basic-type background and <laughs> doing a bit of C-sharp. I just couldn't. The whole uh, the whole um, MVC-type approach and the whole way that you, you – you know, I was used to in Visual Studio, you, you sort of created a form, uh, you created a button, you double-clicked on the button, you had your code, you wrote your code. That was it. Um, and this concept of sort of writing out, having outlets and, and having a, a design that was disconnected from the code and trying to, and I remember dri we were driving somewhere one weekend 
uh, and as these things always come to you when you're not doing code. And it suddenly, I just suddenly had this weird sort of epiphany as I was driving. And when we got home, I immediately fired up the laptop and actually did a quick, you know, label button click. And it just, you know, it worked because I suddenly got it. Everything clicked. Um, but even then, I still found it quite frustrating to, to do Objective-C. Um, and it was one of my colleagues, actually, that showed me this. And he sort of said, oh, take a look at this titanium thing. And obviously, it was very iOS focused at the time. But I was just amazed at the fact that I could sort of, you know, create a project and launch it and it would run. And there was a tab group. And all of a sudden, you could drop a label on and, you know, and it was all JavaScript, um, which was awesome. So, yeah. then Yeah, I, it's I, nice I, I, I could just use uh, the technology you've already learned yeah. and be able to apply it to mobile and bam, you just... It just works. Yeah, and I remember writing. Nice. I wrote. I wrote. Uh, we had a. We, I worked for a company at the time. We had a um, an online meta checker, you know, for SEO, uh, and it, it worked with with XML, which was horrific. But you know, you could work with it with Titanium, but it was. It's, and it always has been horrific XML. Um, so uh, yeah, it was a. It was an XML based. Um, it, it, it had a front end, but it also had this sort of API you could call. Um, and basically you gave it a URL and it would give you a load of advice, you know, on meta tags and what keywords to use. And it would analyze the keywords and all this stuff. So the, the server was doing all the work. And the first app I wrote, one of the first apps was this app for the company I was working for. And it was this, um, it was a URL checker. Um, so it was really simple, but I, it's sort of afternoon's work. Um, and that was what was quite impressive. And then after that, I did an app for a, um, an allergy company uh, called, Sno- uh, what was it called? Sneeze Alarm. So it, um, it was an alarm clock. It basically looked like the normal iOS alarm clock at the time, you know, the sort of pre-iOS 10 one. So it was, I think it was iOS 3 at the time, um, iOS 3 or iOS 4. And um, it was a simple alarm clock. But what, what it did was it would look up the pollen count uh, to a remote API, get this pollen count for the next day. And so when the alarm went off, you'd get a number of sneezes based on the pollen count. Um, but nice. it, was, it, was, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was a good exercise. It, I, I learned a lot about uh, writing good code in terms of, um, you know, like techniques that people uh, still do now, where uh, which I used to do, you know, in table views. If you were doing table views, um, you'd have a table view and then you'd have all of the event, you'd have an on-click on every single item in the table view. And I was putting an on-click on the buttons in the table view rather than just on the row, rather than just on the table or even the row. Um, and so instead of just having that one on-click on the table view, I was putting the on-click on every single button, which was crazy. Um and obviously, yeah, they're all going to a single handler, but it was still inefficient. And I learned loads of stuff about that. And one of the biggest things I learned on that project was, which I still talk about now, was pricing to do with iOS and Android. Because I, I priced the app as sort of a, you know, here's the price for an iOS and Android build. And obviously, the client's perception of that was it was 50-50. Um, my perception at the time was, which was, you know, my understanding of what I could do was, was about 80% shared code. Um, between so iOS, I'd work on iOS, and then you know Android would be the other sort of twenty percent. You'd be ready for Android, and of course, uh, what happened was during the project that was they dropped Android, um, and then I got paid half <laughs> because oh, I had I hadn't specified that I hadn't said at the start, uh, you know, I, and since then that's a great lesson because since then it was like right here's the price, and you know that is for iOS and Android, or if you don't want Android, it's for iOS and Android will be twenty percent more or whatever, but it's very clear as to what the breakdown is, so that there's no confusion. Yeah, and I think you really hit on something too: is that just building, get out there and build something. Because every time you build something, whether it's small or big, you learn something new. You learn how to do something better. Um, you learn how to do something easier. And I mean, that's that's great. I mean, waiting for that perfect app or doing something. It's not going to work. I mean, just getting out there and just building stuff. And 
it really is really easy with titanium. And like I said, you can't, I, you can't be an expert, um, or you can't learn every technology that's out there. I mean, I, I did the same thing, went down and started trying to learn Objective C. I, I had some Java background before I did .NET, but you can only learn so much and you can only become an expert and even less. So, I mean, really being able to use titanium, it really allowed you to use the existing skills and get the biggest bang for your buck kind of with your technology. Yeah, exactly. And I think as, as you know, in the early days, Android support wasn't, wasn't great um, because it was very early yeah. days. It was like a 0.8 release or something, but obviously as Android got better, um, and support for Android got better. You know, more recently now, I'm finding, I remember working, I did a, a classic mistake of, of working on an app and staying in iOS for a month. You know, the typical thing people do, they start off with good intentions and then basically you just stay in iOS because the simulators are easier to work with or have been easier to work with than Android. And I remember getting to a month's worth of work on this thing. It was a search directory, a bit like Yellow Pages. I don't know if you have that over there. And Basically, I did. It was all working fine in iOS. It was tested. It was deployed to the client. Client was happy, ready to go to the App Store. And then it was like, right, let's do the Android version. And I just remember my, my sort of gut feet, gut wrenching feeling of thinking, oh, this is going to be a bit of a nightmare. And I sort of framed it with them that you know this could take you know it could take me a few days to get this sorted. I've got to basically build it, see what breaks, build it, you know, fix it, see what breaks, so on. You know, it was using mapping as well, so you have got to start putting the Google API keys yeah. and all that sort of stuff in there. And I think it took me an evening. I basically had told them this in the afternoon. Uh, I did all the Google API keys, just the stuff because it wasn't actually building. So once it actually built and ran, then I had a few classic Android issues. You know, labels had defaulted to gray instead of black. Uh, table views were all tight instead of nicely spaced because that was the default with uh, with Android. And a few transparency issues of things. But it literally took me a, f- a couple of hours to fix a few things. And the next morning they had a build for Android. Um, and there were a few little, you know, minor glitches that had to be sorted further down the line. But it was, I was quite impressed. And that's always the thing that stood out for me with Titanium versus some other stuff out there was the, the API coverage for the cross-platform stuff is just really, really good, you know. And, and you know, if you, if you do, uh, you know, it's easier to preach, uh, preach to uh, people about this, but if you do go down that route of testing things on Android and iOS as you go, then, it does make your life a lot easier. As soon as you add a screen to iOS, you know it's going to be fine in Android. It does, yeah. Waiting too long can it, it can bite you, especially if you haven't tested some of the, your components as you go along the way. I think as yeah. the community gets bigger, the development community has gotten really big too. There's a lot more um, tested cross-platform type components that kind of add on to titanium to kind of if you have to if you have a client or someone that really wants something to look like ios but on android or vice versa you have some things that you can use and you know it works because you've either used it before or you know someone that's used it before so that helps yeah the thing that's really helped me um i mean this is a classic thing with what we do um is that i spend a lot of my time building stuff for clients uh, or writing blog posts and doing videos or whatever. And I'm not really got the time to write the components that I need to write to be able to help me. And I've started doing that more recently. And one of the big things that's, that I found is if you take, if you take that stuff that you're having to do often and you modulize that down into a little widget or a common JS module or a, you know, redefined alloy tag or stuff like that, uh, you can test that independently on iOS and Android and Windows and whatever you want. Make sure it, co- it works completely on those different platforms. And then when you finally come to implement that into an app, you know it's already going to work. Um, so the classic, exactly. exa- classic example there is Pickers. You know, 
um, on an iPad if you've got or an or an iPhone where you click it and you get the people expect that they sort of talk about drop down lists because they're used to it from the web. So it's trying to, <laughs> it's trying to come up with a picker that's going to work, you know. So it slides up from the bottom or whatever on iOS, um, and then it appears sort of pops up like it does on Android or slides up from the bottom, however you want it to work. But just getting that tested. So I I did something recently where I started writing my own little UI library because um, it was always a classic thing that you were having to do for sign up forms or input forms or any kind of login or anything. So I just wrote like a little CommonJS file that um, has some tag redefinitions in there for Alloy. Um, so basically, you can say, take a text field that's in your normal app, and then you can add the module attribute with this UE library. And that text field will now be created with a caption that's slightly above it. Um, it has built-in error management, so you can just say show error, and it will go red and show its error message. Um, it has all the you know value setting and getting and all that stuff, but things like a, a drop-down list. So I I created a tag called uh, what did it, what do they call it picker field, um, and the main reason I did that is I didn't I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically when you start redefining alloy tags, you've got to be careful that you you do it in such a way that um, still makes that tag work as expected for the person doing it. So if they're implementing a picker field and then they're adding the, your module attribute to to use your redefined version, you don't want to have suddenly a method or property not working that they would expect to work. So what I did right. was created, uh, for certain things, I created a new type of tag. So picker field is my own tag. So I can define how that works, you know, completely. Um, and it, it's very simple. You know, it, it defaults to being able to use the normal date time type pickers. Um, but you can also give it um, in the attribute or you can set a property to set the picker values and just give it an array and then it will just show that that list. So it makes, uh, for an app I'm doing at the moment, which is a medical app, I'm taking lots of inputs. Um, it makes it really easy because I've basically written all these controls. Um, I've tested them all so they work on iPhones and and, uh, and um, iPads and Android. So the picker field will re- will render correctly on all those things. And I've just got a little test app which I include that library in, and I've just got a load of for- you know load of fields, and I can I can test the error handling. I can test all kinds of things, little tool tips that can go on and uh, give you help or whatever sub uh, sub captions and all kinds of things like that. Th- then when it works, I just know that if I need to add a new field, so once I've done that background work. I came to having to um, create a new uh, a new screen called Patient Details, which is all about the patient address and things like this. I was just dropping these fields in because they were all tested. They worked. So I drop all the fields in. And what I also did was I created a tag called Form, which is essentially a view, but has a few methods called Get Values and Set Values. And what it can do is it can get all of the field, all of the field properties within itself. So, for instance, if you've got a simple example is a login form. Um, if you have a login form with your username and password using my my library, if you then do form the form dot get values, it will get you all of the properties of that form just in one go, like as one JSON object. So you don't have to go down and you know get the value of the username, get the value of the password. And on a login form, it's only two fields. But if you imagine a form where you've got thirty fields or twenty fields, you know that's oh, a lot yeah. of a lot of things you've got to do. So all I do is do form get values, and it literally gives me a JSON object. Um, and then I can pass it like an array of um, field names that are required, and then it will automatically validate. And there's there's things like that. Now I'm still working on it, but it's really helped. Um, and I think that makes a big difference. You know, like you say, with widgets and libraries that are already tested, can really make your life easier. Oh yeah. And it, I mean, you know, all that code. No matter what language you're you're coding in, over the the longer you do it, you always have that library that you bring around. Everything yeah. <laughs> you're going to do an app and it gets bigger and bigger. And then you go through it every once in a while and kind of prune it. And you're like, Oh, why did I have that in there? Kind of thing. And 
But then every once in a while you go like, oh, yeah, I should really open source this. And then you go through and you look at it and you're like, oh, I can't open source. That that looks awful. <laughs> and, then, and then you're yeah. like, you try and take apart it. Oh, you clean it up and you open source it. And then you go back to your library again. And But, I mean, I've tried to do that a little bit more lately, just taking some of that stuff I use all the time yeah. and just share it out because, I mean, it's helping the community is sharing a lot more of find these things like your tags. And I know, um, like you said, it makes it easier when you, if you're creating a new alloy tag and it has a, a unique name, it's not the same name as yeah. another alloy tag, but like, I know you have the nav bar, um, tag so that like you could, or no, maybe I think it was a tab bar, um, the bottom tab. So that one, I think shared the same name, um, so you, like you said, you had to make sure when you're going to do that, that it's going to behave on iOS the, the same way. I think you just deferred everything over to the iOS one, but yeah. you wanted to behave in a, in a way that they expected. So if someone goes and has that in an iOS app, it just works. Um, so yeah, that, but custom tags are, are awesome. There's, there's so many things you can do to just either enhance existing tags or adding new ones that just it really can make your life a lot easier when going to build stuff. Yeah, and you can also do things like, I mean, I know that TSS, you know, you, you can use TSS with views to do vertical layouts, horizontal layouts, block layouts, all that sort of stuff. But actually sometimes having those nicely named tags. So I know things like native script and languages like that, you know, they have a very alloyish type yeah. layout. They have a thing called stacked layout. Um, so, you know, you can create a tag called stacked layout um, that does stacking um, or, or that does vertical layout, or you could do a horizontal layout tag so that when you're looking at your XML, it actually makes you know it makes sense what it's doing. Um, now, obviously, if you go down that route, you're creating custom tags that are doing custom things. Uh, but, you know, with all these things, if you release these things and put, give it some readmes and some examples, then I don't think it's a big deal. But I know what you mean with the, the library stuff, because it's like with this UE library, um, you do go through that sort of um, those phases of sort of imposter syndrome and all those things. <laughs> you sort of write the thing, it's really useful for me. And then my biggest problem with any of this stuff when I approach projects or work on projects is my the amount of refactoring I end up doing. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to write and you have to be really careful sometimes it just doesn't kill kill you because you know, like with the UE library, I was getting to the point where all of my elements had this very similar structure. They had a caption, they had whatever the element was underneath. So if you imagine like a text field and then a caption above it. So the picker field okay. would look the same with the caption above it. Um, a text area would look, would be bigger, but with a caption above it. And every single one had the caption above. It had the error message coming up underneath. It had the bordering and the red border when it errored. And it got to the point where I realized I was writing lots of duplicate code. So I ended up having to write or making myself write a wrapper, which handled the caption, the error message, the subcaption, the error handling, and then within that thing would then be created the unique element. So I wasn't repeating code. Um, but it does get, it does can get you to the point where sometimes you're just spending way too much time refactoring um, and, and not enough time actually getting on with it, which is probably what I've done in this case with this project. <laughs> uh, that seems to happen with a lot of projects. <laughs> but um, yeah, it can suck up your time. Exactly. So uh, we've got a few notes for these, for these sessions to talk through. So one of the things I thought would be good to start with is what, What's your setup in terms of what you code with? Do you use Studio? Do you use some other editor? Do you use the CLI? What's your setup? Uh, I've been using Visual Studio Code for the past couple of years. Uh, 
I mean, it was a natural for me because I came from Visual Studio, doing a lot of Visual Studio before with .NET. And uh, I did a lot of titanium development actually on Windows, um, not for the Windows phone, but I did the development on Windows. And then I would I had a little setup to be able to do the builds on a remote Mac. Right. Uh, so Visual Studio Code was really nice. And then when now I'm doing all my development on the Mac, but I still use Visual Studio Code because it works really fast and I I really like it. And then I do everything else like through the CLI. Um a big fan of automation and the, the CLI tools. So if if there's a tool out there, if there's not, I'll probably write one to do it. But uh, I know there's a lot of uh, like the the TN and yeah um, I use a lot of NPM scripts or write my own and but that's primarily where I, the environment I live in right now. Yeah, I mean, I started, obviously, when, when we started out, ironically, we actually used our own IDEs with Titanium Developer. Um, and then Titanium Studio came along and became Accelerator Studio, um, which I used for a while. Um, and it's good, you know, it has all the debugging and it has, I found it was good when you're starting out. You know, for me, it was great to have one single IDE um, configured itself, installed all its updates, um, had all my simulators and configurations handy. There was a sort of plug-in capability with it as well. Uh, pretty customizable in terms of theming, which is always a fun thing to mess around with from time to time. <laughs> um, and, you know, the build process, debugging and everything was, it worked, it worked great for me. Uh, but I think it got to the point where I wanted to do more scripting. Um, and I was finding that I needed to do, I needed to do much more complex builds, uh, especially when I was doing alloy apps and using themes. Um, so I started writing my own sort of NPM type scripts and publishing them there. Um, sort of the TIFF thing and the Titch, um, uh, Titch apps that I wrote, which let me uh, theme stuff that you couldn't normally theme, like the TI app XML file and things like that, um, so that I could have one code base and generate five different apps. And I was writing a lot of build, uh, these build scripts, so I could just say, you know, publish X name, publish Y name, and it would just go off and do it. And it would either create a build that I could send via um, installer or test flight or whatever, or it would do a build that I could that would go straight into Xcode and be ready to publish for the store. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I'm CLI, I'm pretty much, oh, I'm, I'm fully CLI now, unless I've got to do anything to do with tr training or tutorials or video stuff with studio. Um, and I actually use Atom at the moment. I, I have, I've switched between visual code, visual studio code and Atom. Um, there's a few things missing that I could probably, I, I mean, I probably just need to look in to see if I can do myself. The killer, the killer one on Atom for me is, um, Josh's, um, split view, alloy split view. Um, so he wrote a really cool plugin, which does the really nice split view so that when you click on a controller, it opens its um, TSS and it opens its XML file um, so that you've got all all three files open at the same time. And you can, I think if you've got models associated with it, it will open those as well. So you can literally just, you know, flick between these different panels and do your editing, which is quite nice. That's nice. It, I mean, yes, it has some slowness issues sometimes. I've had some issues with it, um, but it's been pretty good. But I, I, keep hearing good things about visual code visual studio code so i need to sort of maybe mess around with that um but i have been playing around with atom plugin um you know uh, extension so i wrote one this week uh which yeah tell, just... tell me about that atom plugin that 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 one is really cool yeah so i saw it was a i saw it was a tutorial i just did a search for you know how to write an atom plugin so i could uh, extension so i could just see how quickly and easy it was um, and it was a, a tutorial that I found that was talking about text replacement. Um, and they had a demo of another app that was that was used to search 
Stack Overflow. <laughs> so it would, you would say, I need to do a, you know, a loop or whatever, and it would search Stack Overflow and, or look for someone that had <laughs> done that. And it would grab the first bit of code it found that was an answer or whatever, and then and give you that code back. So I just had this thought of having uh, something that I could go in when I'm, because I'm, you know, that thing that went on Twitter a few weeks ago about um, I'm a programmer, but I still have to look up how to do a for next loop type stuff, you know. Um, and that's what I'm like sometimes. I'm, I'm like it with, with birthdays. You know, everything's in my diary. So I, I forget people's birthdays because it's all in my diary. And the same with coding. I know where to you know, find it. Yeah, exactly. And the same with coding. It's like if I had to go into a, a sort of closed room with no internet and write an app from scratch, I could probably do most of it, but I would struggle with a few things because I just rely on being able to look things up, you know, and it, my brain oh, yeah. just, yeah, my brain just doesn't retain it. So. There were certain situations where I might want to do, um, you know, uh, maybe a, a bit of a code in a controller that I've done before, like push notifications or um, saving stuff to properties or whatever. Um, and so the idea was that you could just type in something. So I could just type in push or push notification or whatever, highlight that text, um, hit, hit a key, and it would replace that with the block of code. <clears throat> but I thought, wouldn't it be good if that was basically something that could be updated and, and added to? So the way I did it was, I created a repo that just has a load of code snippets um, just as JS files. So it might be called, um, say, push-notification or open-gallery or open-camera, etc. .js. And then the idea is is that this extension is very lightweight. All it does is it looks at the the, the text you've entered. So if you typed in open space gallery or typed in gallery, whatever the name is, it would then do a, a quick check of that repo to grab the relevant file, grab its content, and then just replace that in the in the editor. Um, so that's, that's worked quite well. And it was a good exercise of how to sort of publish to atoms, uh, repos and all that sort of stuff. And then what I'm, what I want to play with it next is I want to look at working out what file extension you're in so that if you're in an XML file, you could say, um, you know, contact list and then do the same thing. And it would, it would suddenly block in a load of XML that would be a contact list in a list view or a, t- a table view or whatever. Um, but obviously then I've got to work out what file you're in, get the extension and maybe just subdivide the, the things down but i thought it was quite a nice concept to be able to have it as a repo because it means people can't can not only if they want to do prs on the atom extension but they can just add to these templates and there's no there's no magic about how those templates work it is literally a js file with a name that has some js in it um so you can just go to it anyway and copy and paste it if you want but this will do it for you um so that was that was the background yeah. of that which was quite fun that's that's really cool i i think i want to it's motivated me to try and look to see if I can hook that into a Visual Studio Code. Yes. Like plugin of some sort too. Like that'd be nice if there was a shared snippet library that you could use with multiple IDs and just exactly. have it work. That would be really cool. I mean, if I could get stuff like that and also do this split view, I mean, the split view is not a killer. It's it's not going to, you know, if Atom died tomorrow and I had to use Visual Code, it's not going to kill me, but the split view is nice. But if I could do the same thing in, in, in Studio Code, I'd be quite keen to try that because I quite like the Git, uh, the Git integration in there as well. Yeah, because I know um, there was a, I think it was David, uh, he wrote a Visual Studio Code plugin. It's hooked to a keyboard shortcut. So if you if you hit it when you're, I think, in the controller or view or model, it'll open in the split view the other one so it's not quite the same as sounds like being able to do it automatically, but with a keyboard shortcut, you can open it up in the three three panes. That's quite cool. I mean, the the but, challenge the challenge I guess with having because I've obviously got Atom and then I've done some you know added some extensions. There's a there's an alloy extension. There's a titanium autocomplete extension. There's 
um, there's XML and TSS formatting and and there's a sort of pretty pretty fine and all those sort of you know JS lint and yep. all those sort of things you can put in and of course there's equivalents in in Visual Studio Code but I think some of them there's that issue that you can get not only with your own code but working with other people where you know prettifying it in one app or one IDE doesn't necessarily do it the same way in the other and just trying to come up with that consistency that because I've got this habit when I edit files you know I go into a file uh, I've got into this habit with Atom so I'm editing some code and I I think my hotkey is uh, I'm just gonna remember it now. I think it's um, Shift Command H or something like that. So I sort of do do my code, Shift Command H, save, um, so that I sort of you know just check my code in, do a do a format, and then save the file. Right. And and of course the problem that you get there is that you're working with someone else who's not using the same thing. I've gone in and really only I've changed a couple of lines of code or something, uh, and I go to Git and the changes are the entire file because everything's rearranged. Um, <laughs> and it, and then you sort of then I have to go back sort of undo what I the format. Do a save, then see what the, and you can then see that the line was like two lines of code change, and then commit that because you don't want to commit this huge quick change. Yeah, because it makes diffs a really tough then too. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I probably need to spend some time testing Visual Studio Code, testing Atom, trying out the different extensions, and just getting it consistent. So because it will be nice to be able to just switch between them if I feel like it, or just you know switch to code and not have to not mess up all my existing stuff. Basically, a tool I started using for almost all my projects now uh, was ESLint. Um, I mean, I've used a lot of the different linting tools and things and formatting. I'm the same way. I really, I want it to be consistent look and feel and code, but ESLint is really nice. There's so many different options. I mean, you can lock it down, but then you just commit that the ESLint file with, um, with your project. And then pretty much all the IDs um, out there will look for that, like a dot eslint cool. config or something file, and then kind of use that to do some of the formatting. So we've kind of used that for, we have a lot of times we have developers using different IDs. And so we can kind of use that to try and make sure. Now you can also write hooks and Git to try and format it before it commits or something. But there's also like build, you know, like with Alloy, uh, the JMK file or something that you could yeah. put in to kind of run the ESLint before because there's some things that you can do as war- some things it'll fix by itself automatically. But then there's other things that it'll just either by your configuration either do a warning or an error depending on if it can't fix it. But this is something that I won't allow for this project, then it'll fail. So it won't do the build or something. So what, it, that's nice too on. Um, we can do it as part of like a build process or something. It can just run. And if there's any errors, then we know there's a problem. You can like require document, you can JS doc or something on the functions or whatever. So that's nice. I like all kinds of stuff like that. That just makes life a bit easier. One of the first things I do on a project is create a load of build scripts for myself just to using, I've got that, the TN um, thing that Fokker did, um, Tiny. Yeah. Which, which is great for just creating little shortcuts and just being able to sort of say, you know, TN device, TN iPad, TN iPhone, and uh, you know, or TN uh, you know test or something, and it will build you a, a version that you could distribute and do all the uh, provisioning and everything. That that sort of stuff's really cool. I know my TN stopped working this morning, and it was like, oh wait, I have to know how to type out the I know. thing. I'm like, yeah. what? What am I going to do here? No. Yeah, it's, it's the old thing of going on someone else's machine and going, oh my God, I can't build it. I can't do this without, <laughs> without all the time. So the, again, it's that thing of you're so used to the shortcuts, you don't know the original yeah. commands on how to do stuff. 
Um, do you code? Are you using? Are you using anything like Babel? Are you doing any ES6 stuff, or is it all still just normal uh, sort of titanium supported JS out of the box? I do. Um, over the last year or so, I've used different methods for trying to run it, but I do like um, being able to use the ES6, ES7 stuff. Uh, I for a while I tried turning it off because I know uh, there's a lot of support for it already in the framework now. So, and also that like if you want ES7 or now I don't know is it ES8? That's how I can't remember now. But if you want to use some of that, um, you can still just run the plugin. And so I do use that. I like um, I like being able to do that, especially now that uh, Node has built in a lot more support that for that than if yeah. I'm doing. ES6 or 7 in um, in a NPM script, I can just sometimes reuse some of that stuff just over in Titanium as well then. Yeah, that was playing with, um, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was playing with some ES, uh, some Babel stuff, just testing it out with a with a test app build. And it was quite nice that you could sort of drop the ES6 format code directly in a, I think it was in the alloy.js files, just testing to see whether something worked. Um, and it was just quite nice to have sort of regular code and, and the S6 code together, and it would just take care of it rather than sort of saying it's got to be separate files or something like that. Um, I'm not sure how it will work when the, we finally get the S6 support. I'm hoping it will be the same. Um, I haven't used it a huge amount only because I'm, which is a strange thing to say because you think, well, why why would you sort of use Alloy? Because Alloy is really an add-on on top of Titanium, but I guess it's you know it's it's done by Accelerator and it's supported, so it's much and you know it's <laughs> not necessarily going anywhere. But it always concerned me using an external plugin to do that parsing of the code just in case something happened with that external plugin. You know, it wasn't updated or some node compatibility or something stopped it working, and all of a sudden all this code I've written. <laughs> Then you'd be in trouble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I've always, I've always sort of, but I think it's getting, it's got, it's a lot more developed now and it's a lot more established in terms of people using it. So I think, you know, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. And, and we're close anyway to getting full, fully, you know, support for ES6 anyway in, in titanium in the SDK. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's got some interesting stuff in there. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, I haven't gone fully through the whole ES6, ES7, ES8 uh, features, but you know, promises things and all that sort of stuff that you would normally add in afterwards it's 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 a different way of thinking in terms of some of the code and the way you lay out stuff and how requires work and things like that um so it should be but it should be interesting because it's always nice to you know learn something new instead of being stuck in your ways so it should be quite fun when we we're finally able to use it properly yeah so i mean mentioning promises do you do you use promises in your I ha- titanium maps right now i haven't i haven't in titanium maps no i mean i've i've done it when i've done back end code if i've done any node code um there was an app i wrote that was to do with nutrition and it was to do with looking up shops or eateries that had um there were certain characteristics that had to be done like uh, location so distance and then the parameters that you were putting in in terms of the food types and the proteins and all this sort of stuff and it was having to do quite a bit of filtering and quite a bit of querying on the server uh, and it was super fast when it was done, but it was I I, there's, I just had to use promises because there was just no way you could. It was just going to be such a nightmare to do it otherwise. Um, and I had it working quite nicely. But I've never, I guess, the what I've done in in apps is I haven't I haven't gone. I'm not not going to use it for a you know. I just don't want to use it. It's like I've almost felt like if I need to use promises, maybe there's a different way that I can structure this so it works a little bit better. Um, it's almost like. 
because if you think about the you know the simple the simple answer is you've got a lot of callbacks uh, a lot of nested callbacks then promises is obviously the way to to get around that but i sort of reverse that logic and think well if i've got a lot of nested callbacks is there another way i can do this that doesn't need all these nested callbacks um rather than sort of slap a band-aid type solution on and and then move on um because you know promises would would help there obviously uh but yeah i i just sometimes think okay maybe i need to step back a bit and just look at what i've done here because maybe it's not working as efficiently as it could do. That's true. Yeah, I've I've used promises in Titanium for a while now. Um, and at first, before promises were built into Node, I mean, as, as part of the spec, as far as promise, I just used Bluebird. Um, right. And then now that promise is part of like the ES6 or whatever, it. It still is not included. Like if you use Babel or something, it's not going to necessarily give you uh, promise. But I'm I'm not a big fan of putting things in a global scope. But I do put like promise in there for my titanium apps um, because then if I start using Node.js um, scripts that expect promise, they all just work. Um, and yeah. they work really well. Blue- Bluebird seems to be. I mean, it's really fast and it's like really compatible with um, the the native promises. So that works well. I know I, I started using um, that, that REST E library. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember who wrote that. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that I know that's your library for talking to APIs. That's an awesome, but I've like, I made a slight change to it over the weekend or something to just use native promises in it. I mean, a couple lines of code and it just works. Oh, that's cool. Um, and so it's it's really nice that it the titanium framework is flexible enough that if you just want to do something, it's usually only a couple lines of code and you can do it. I know a lot more code nowadays is starting to be shared between Node.js and Titanium. Yeah. Uh, as things go along, and so more like polyfills and things are being written to kind of make it nice so that you can just a lot of times almost take a script without even running it through a something to transform it into titanium. A lot of times you can just take it as is and yeah. drop it in and use it. That's really nice. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the nice thing about, so the thing with Resty came about was um, I had not done. So before I wrote Resty, I had not done anything with models and collections. I just hadn't got into it. I was using alloy, but I was doing everything with, you know, I was, I was using the XML. I was using the TSS. I was using the controllers, but I was doing all of my, uh, binding of data manually in the controller. You know, I was um, I was rendering things on the screen in the controller in the view by you know calling up the controller and then populating each element. Um, and it, it didn't seem wrong to me. It just seemed fine and everything was working. I was writing a lot of code, <laughs> uh, but it was all working great. And then I I can't remember what happened. I basically was thinking I was starting to write. So the first thing I did was yeah, because the first version of Resty was basically. I was getting sick and tired of writing a lot of the same code when it came to APIs. So I had a yeah. a file that I'd found online. I don't even know who wrote it. It was it was called API.js, and it basically did simple get uh, you know get put um, it was get and post. It was it was pretty straightforward. Um, you could just call an endpoint in a certain with a certain um, command and then get a response back. But I, but even with that, I was then I was then sort of writing an API, my own API 
uh, JS file that was then requiring that, using that to do all the gets and the posts and everything. But it was doing a lot of, you know, is it valid JSON? Uh, does it have a response value? All these sort of things that I was I was doing duplicates of code. And I, I thought I wanted to write something where I could do one-time configuration of this whole API structure and it would self-generate the JS for me. So I would get a, you know, api.getvideos or api.getcontacts and it would just work. Um, so that was the first version of Resty. I wrote that to make that process easier, which worked great. And I could say, you know, um, I could say alloy.globals.resty.getContacts and it would give me back a contact list and I could do stuff with it. And then, then I started thinking about, the, I think someone had mentioned about models and collections. And so I really then hadn't looked into what it was all about. I knew that I didn't want to go down the traditional alloy type route of creating all the model files because that would be against what I was trying to do with my one-time config. Right. So I started looking about how, how you know, what does it use? It uses Backbone. Let's look into Backbone, see how that works. And what was really cool about that was it was a really great exercise in learning about Backbone and more about how models and collections work with Alloy um, and Alloy's implementation of it and just how it all worked. And so it give, gave me a really good background on Backbone itself and the sync adapters and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it wasn't, it took a while to get my head around it, but I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and I was sort of cooking lunch for the kids and I just had the laptop in the kitchen and I was just hacking at code basically until I suddenly got it working and just ending up with that whole data binding with alloy working was just to me it was like revolutionary in terms of my code and what I was building you know all of a sudden I was literally copying I was cutting sort of 50 60 lines of code out of a controller and replacing it with a fetch um, and you know adding a uh, uh, you know obviously the config would be done I'd do that config file but once that was done I would literally put in the data collection against a table view or a list view, do the fetch command, bang, my data was appearing. And that was just astonishing, you know, and then learning about just being able to mock collections and models. And it basically changed the way I went about building projects. And I remember the first time I used it was on that project with the multiple builds and it was a sports app. There was no API yet. They were still working on the API, but they had a basic structure of the JSON request that would come back. And so I, I needed to mock all the screens up. I was going to, um, I was going to do a really, what I thought was a good approach, which was mock all the controls, test them on Android, test them on iOS, know that a button's going to work and a field's going to work, and then build the screens. But I needed the data. So I just mocked up some JSON data uh, based on what they told me and then used um, Resty to create mock collections and mock models, um, created all the screens. I, you know, I had a comments list that was being, it was obviously a static bit of data. But when you looked at a news article, you'd see the comments list and you could even add a comment and it would go into the collection. Um, it would get lost as soon as you came out of the news article, but the function was there, you know, the code was there. And then when they actually gave me the API, um, I think it took me like an afternoon to integrate it because pretty much all of the endpoints I just plugged into the config, 90% um, of the JSON stayed the same. There were a couple of fields that they changed. And initially the way I solved it was just do a transform um, to transform the value as it came in. Um, and obviously later fixed it properly, but it just got it all working. And so the comments thing suddenly worked and was saved to the server. Uh, and it was just a really good exercise. And I find that stuff's quite interesting sometimes because, you know, you're, you're adding something that you probably might not have looked at yet, but actually rather than just adding it, you're sort of delving much further down into how it actually works. Um, it was a bit like I used to use pars.com when it was a hosted service. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it was really easy. You went in, you created a project and um, you stored your app and you linked it with your API and, oh, yeah. and, and everything worked. 
Uh, and I remember having several projects that were using it when the announcement came through that they were shutting it down. Um, <laughs> and apart from the initial panic, the next thing I thought was, okay, well, the next day I've got to find something else. And again, again that was a great exercise because what it actually made me realize what is what was behind PaaS. You know, I knew it was Mongo-based. Um, I knew they'd written their own sort of node server, but that was it. The next day, I think it was, I think it was literally within a couple of days, they open sourced the server. Uh, people were already creating, you know, deploy to Heroku buttons and deploy to Google code buttons. And so I went through that process of deploying it to um, a Heroku instance, um, sticking the database on, uh, what was it, uh, M-Labs, and got a whole setup of this app that I was building running on this other environment and learning about how that whole process works. Um, I don't think I'd done a, a node deployment to Heroku before, and I was learning about that and the MongoDB I'd used, but I hadn't done, you know, I hadn't used uh, M-Labs or any of their stuff. And, and it was just a really good exercise and it actually gave me a really good understanding of what was going on so that I had that confidence later to say, well, you know, I can host it myself or, I mean, obviously other services came along, but it's it's not a big deal. You know, it, it's manageable. And now I understand what's going on behind the scenes. It's funny that circumstances can often <laughs> lead to solutions that you wouldn't have thought of before, but... I, exactly. And too, exactly. I, li- I like how you came up with it. Uh, it's all, a lot of cool libraries. You s- developers, especially when they're creating for other developers, you start with, how would I want to use this? Yeah. I mean, I'll start off with a mock usage of a library that doesn't even exist. And I actually did the same thing for APIs. So like, because I'd done a lot of API stuff in the past and server side, and I've used .NET API clients and written my own I knew how I wanted to be able to handle APIs and there was nothing like that out there uh, for Titanium. So I started like, okay, if I was going to consume an API in Titanium, how would I want to use it and yeah. the signatures and the, the functions? So I started doing all that and I started building all that. And it was right about the time that you came out with that. It was really similar. I mean, there's only a couple things that might've been different. Um, and I hadn't got that far in developing mine. I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is nice because being able to, I mean, the APIs are huge. If if you're doing mobile and you don't have a good understanding of APIs, that that is one thing that is really good to understand is like because that's the data that like runs a lot of your apps. And so be able yeah. to make it super easy and just be able to consume an API and then yeah, obviously your library has grown into a lot more. Um a lot of people don't understand the models and collections, so be able to make that easy as well. It, it's libraries like that that just really help kind of grow um, this developer grassroots community that that is Titanium. So that's really nice. Yeah, and it's nice. It's nice that it's been contributed to a lot. I think someone added support for um, promises, so you could plug in your own promises library. Um, I think it had some Q support. I think was the library that was originally used. So they did all that stuff, and I managed yep. to merge all that in. Um, and again, that you know, with promises, I'd never really looked at promises, and so that was quite cool seeing how the code was implemented to sort of understand. Okay, you know, that's how promises works, and that's how it could work with this, you know, with this particular library. Um, but what was also interesting was that um, I think there was a, there was a few requests for things like caching and stuff like this, and and I was almost going down the route. I think there was a version I did at one point that I introduced some caching, uh, but then it got to the point where I thought, well, I've got these hooks in there. So the idea was there were these hooks in place that could say. You could do your configuration and then there would be hooks that would say, right, before the send is done to that endpoint, you get all the parameters so that you can do stuff with them. So there's a before send event, then there's an after event, 
and then there's an, a load event so that you you've got these hooks into this into this uh, library at all the points where it's doing stuff so for instance one of the classic things with pars with a pars server is um, when you've got a model when you get a model back from the normal pars request you'll get all of those sort of date created date updated fields um, right and, and what will happen is that will be in your model uh, if you then use the sort of um, model collection type backbone approach that Resty supports, which is you've changed your model, you do the dot .save, um, it will try and save that model back to the server and it will pass back those fields as part of the model, which depending on how the configuration's done, I don't think I ever had it on pars.com, but on the Sushido service I've used, I had it where it will fail because it's not expecting you to give it the date created field. So one of the tricks you could do was use the before send event to strip that stuff out. And then it would send, and then you could continue with the call, and it would it would just send the, the raw model stuff, uh, the raw model properties. So there was that sort of thing. So yeah, that yeah, the extensibility things like that. That you don't even have to add the features, but the fact that you made it extensible so that you can hook in to do the kind of things that you yeah. want to do. That's what really makes it powerful. Yeah. So it actually solved. So someone came up with a really good point, which was my uh, when you configure the endpoints, um, you configure not only the, um, the, you configure the models collections, you can configure the endpoint, um, you configure the method, get post, put, whatever, but you also configure the, the where the object, what, what the uh, data is stored in. So, you know, you'd expect an API, if I said get contacts, is going to give you back an array of contacts, but some APIs don't. They give you back like a results object or a contacts object or, uh, or contacts property. And then inside that is the array. So you've got this extra element, this sort of um, result text or whatever you call it. I think I call it content. So uh, you specify that property name when you do the config. You say, right, I'm going to get the contacts back. And they're actually not going to be, it's not going to be the adjacent response with the contacts in. It's going to be a JSON response that says, you know, result was true, error message was none, and, res and results or um, contacts is where the actual array is. So you can specify that value. But someone mentioned that with um, ArrowDB, if you use ArrowDB um, or App Builder, um, you can have uh, multi-layered um, properties. So you might have results.contacts or something like that. So you've got like a double level and it didn't support that out of no. the box. So I was going down the route of, I'd actually written the code. I just hadn't, I hadn't done anything with it yet. I've written the code that will split that and create the, the, the nested property so that it will get the correct response. And then um, I can't remember who it was that said, I think it was Adam Armstrong, um, suddenly came back to me and said, uh, oh, I've solved it because I used the, uh, I used the transform function after it, after it gets the, 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 the there's transform support that I've done within the config. So all that happens is when the response comes back, he just gets it in that, he traps it in that event. He... Uh, returns or continues with the callback, passing back the, the sub-object, and then it works. So it was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, the problem's actually been solved yeah. by by something I put in there that was for something else. Um, so that's really cool. But it's also nice that there's that's been... That's always nice when that happens. Yeah, and it's just been... It's, it's nice. I mean, you know, open source stuff is... is um, it's challenging, like you say, in terms of the way you put it. Um, I think... it, And I think this is a common thing where developers get into that state where they don't want to publish stuff because they don't want to be judged. Um, they write something, it works for them. Yeah. It's not it's not the cleanest thing in the world, but it does the job. And then there's, then there's a combination of factors that they struggle with. One is if I post this up without any explanation of how it works, I'm just going to get people asking what the hell it does or whatever. Um, then, or I've got to go down the route of writing a readme with examples and all those sort of things. And it becomes more work and more effort and more pain. And so it's very easy not to do that. But it's nice when... 
you do do it and you get suddenly get a pull request come in um, and it's adding a new feature or fixing a bug or whatever. Um, so that's really cool. Um, equally, it can get, uh, not frustrating, but it can be, um, if you go down that route that you were talking about where you've, you've written something, it's not really production ready yet, but you just want to share it. You put it up there, but you're still sort of tweaking it. And then what can happen is someone can come along and do a pull request to sort of change a few things. You're like, oh, that's good what you've done, but it actually sort of screws up what I'm working on here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of trying to manage that yep. process and 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 the politics of going back and saying, okay, well, I, I don't really want to accept this pull request because it's actually going to screw up some stuff. But what I will do is I'll reject it, but I'll merge it in another way, incorporating my changes, and then I'll, I'll make sure I mention you sort of thing. Um, so it's getting around all that stuff as well. But it is... It's it's really good fun when people actually use this stuff and actually um, you know do pull requests and changes and tweaks like that. It's it's, it's really cool. And I've I've been lucky enough with a couple of the libraries to get a few uh, a few people using it like that, which is nice. Yeah, it it can be tough with open source. I know when I first started trying to contribute to open source, I'd do a pull request or something, and a lot of times they were rejected, and it's just because that's not where the the person who owned the the repo or the project that's not the direction they wanted to go or they didn't yeah, want that feature exactly. and and at first I just I'd be frustrated I'm like well okay what do I do here but I mean that is the nice thing about open source if something doesn't do exactly what you want it to do and you do want to go in a different direction you depending on the license you can fork it and yeah and and do that if you really want to and yeah. so that is nice yeah I like that sort of stuff um, in terms of uh, one of the last things I wanted to cover um, was like approach of a project. I think it's quite interesting to see how different people approach things. Um, you know, when you get a project in, I know you published that blog post. I think it was like a hundred items or something um, that you should think <laughs> about when you're doing a project, uh, which was a good list to go through. What's the sort of, you know, how do you go about, um, how do you go about designing the project? So someone comes in with, let's say an inquiry or they want an app built how do you go about the sort of requirements process? Do you do wireframing? Do you mock up screens? How do you sort of start that that process off? What do you think about and what mistakes can be easily made in that process? I mean, I I think a lot of it is making sure um, the potential client or whoever comes to you with the idea fully understands their idea. Um, so asking a lot of questions at first to help them uh, to help them understand like, well, what would it do? What is the purpose? Where does it fit in the, the market? What, I mean, what apps are similar to it? Um, and feature wise help making sure that who's ever asking the questions understands the, the platforms and the capabilities of those platforms. Yeah. Whether, I mean, we're iOS to Android, a lot of times they'll maybe understand one or the other and that, and they want both, but they don't fully understand that the platforms are different and feature set is a little bit different too. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that can be a tough part because a lot of times, uh, yeah, it's, it can be a, a long process to help to getting understand, educating and getting understanding. But I mean, once you get there, I mean, as far as going forward with like a prototype, I've, I mean, I've, I know I've used like, um, uh, I think it's called, is it just in time? Uh, but there's a, a couple different like prototyping type tools out there. Some yeah. better than others, some free, not some not free, but um, just kind of 
making sure, um, again, that you're on the same page with what you're thinking as far as design and functionality and everything else as it goes along. Uh, so have you, do you use prototyping as well or just got, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of times it's just whiteboard and paper. Uh, it, it depends. I mean, it's, I guess what the thing is with all this stuff is you keep learning, you know, every project you do, you sort of learn the mistakes of that project, what could have been done better and, and what you could do good next time. Um, the, the biggest challenge I've, I've had is, that all these designs that come through that you always get, are, uh, whether you, if you do get designs, if you're lucky enough to get designs, the ones you get through are all iOS. You know, it's an, it's an iPhone. There's no Android implementation. It's, it's showing tab groups. It's showing iOS buttons. It's showing iOS interface. Um, but equally, I've had designs through which are completely generic and have, I think they've sort of copied and pasted checkboxes and, and drop-down lists from the web or something. <laughs> and so you get this complete sort of Frankenstein's monster type um, screen layout which is equally horrendous so I think one of the first things I do when I get an inquiry through I mean the first filter I do is I give them a, a budget because which I know is a, a weird thing to do because some people go you know I need, I need an app built can you help type thing can we have a, a phone call or a, or a chat and I find calls and meetings you know if someone comes to my office or I'm going to go on the phone with someone for an hour and then at the end you find out they've got 50 quid um, you know, their budget is a bit unrealistic, <laughs> then you just wasted that time. So one of the first things I do is based on the fact of what apps I build and the, the history of apps I've built and the average cost of those apps, I can typically go back to someone and say, this is a sort of budget price range. At least this is a minimum price that you should be thinking of. So that's the first thing for me because it just filters out. You mean you don't build the apps for free for people? No, I mean, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Come I on, take, what kind of developer are you? Yeah, exactly. I don't take equity. What you know? I work for free for, <laughs> for, for, for 20% or something. So um, so that's the first thing I do. And I actually, I've never had, I say never, and this is the reason I'm saying this is because I've, I've never had anybody um, react to that when I go back to them. Because um, I, I don't go back to them in a harsh way. I, you know, I go back, you know, thanks for the email. Yes, I can help. Uh, sounds interesting, blah, blah, blah. If they've given me a sort of basic idea. Um, and then this is the sort of price range you should think about. You know, if this is within your sort of budget or this is what you're thinking about, then, you know, happy to meet up and have a chat, whatever. Um and I've had one person, I've never had anyone complain. I had one person in the last couple of weeks who came back to me and the opening, he's just immediately responded with, I find it really, um, what was it? What did he say? He said, I find it quite, um, uh, not forceful is the wrong word, but he said, I, I find it quite upfront, I think it was, that you've, you've sort of come back with, to me with these figures. You don't know anything about my project. Um, and you're suddenly giving me these figures. And I just find that a bit weird, <laughs> a bit presumptuous. And I was yeah. like, well, Okay, that's if that's the way you feel. I'm sorry you feel like that, but I've done that to give you some sort of idea. Because he sort of said, "Oh, it sounds like you don't want to be involved if it's if I don't have the minimum price." And it's like, well, I don't want you to waste your time. I don't want you to come here for a meeting, and we're completely incompatible because the budget's not there. Um, so that, yeah, I explained it about like that, and that was that. You know, whatever. Um, but it was quite. I've never had that reaction before. It's always been okay. You know, it's either been okay. Wow, I didn't expect that. Ooh, you know, I haven't got that. Or oh okay yeah that's great can we chat you know and then it's and then at least you've you've got that out of the way there's no confusion then. Um, the other thing, so the next thing I do to do with with design or prototyping is I'll obviously try and get a requirements document which um, I try and explain to people especially if they're if they don't know anything about app development or anything about how to produce a spec or any, anything I'll sort of ask them to put together just a 
a, a bullet point list describing the process of the app, you know. So, you know, if you're talking about Twitter, you might say there's going to be a, a sign up or a login screen and it's going to have these fields on it. And then you're going to go to you're going to go to login and then you're going to go to your timeline and your timeline is going to show this. And it just sort of describes the process. Um, and then I'll tend to put that in a Google Doc because it's easy to collaborate, comment, share stuff um, just to clarify what that is. From there, I can then sort of give them some sort of estimate. Um, and then if they're interested, then we start with the sort of first stage of the process, which is prototyping. And, and the way I do that is I use a service called Proto.io. Uh, and like you say, there are many, and I, I've flicked between others. I've sort of sticking with that one at the moment. It is web-based. I really wish there was an iPad um, version so that I could do it on the iPad Pro because that would be awesome. Um, but it's quite <laughs> quick. It's really quick to put screens together. And it's they've got lots of drag-and-drop stuff now. So you can literally sort of drag a, drag from a button to another screen uh, and it will pop up with, you know, what do you want to have happen here? And you can create very quickly, you can create nice little slide ins and back buttons will work as in, you know, go back to the last screen. You don't have to explicitly say. And the, I don't try and mock the whole app up. But what I try and do is mock up a few screens so that I'm I'm showing some sort of navigation pattern. So, you know, are we using a tab group? Are we using a navigation window? Um, what do the button styles look like? What is the what does the sort of homepage look like? Because, you know, people don't know, some people don't know this stuff and they don't know what, you know, what an app should look like when you open it. Should it be a notifications list? Should it be a homepage of something? Should it be a welcome screen? Whatever. So it's putting together some of those screens. So I, I mean, it might be five, might be 10 screens. Uh, and I'll, I'm, I've learned to explain, you know, this is what it looks like on iOS if you're using a tab group and this is what it's going to look like on Android. You know, it's going to look different. Um, and you know, like you said, you, get you, many- you can use these libraries, like the one I wrote that replaces the tab group and creates a bottom tab group on Android. You can create, create your own, do whatever you want. But I find if I, if I can keep it as simple as possible, at least to start with, it's going to minimize my, my issues later on, um, you know, with performance and all kinds of things like that. I want to use the native built-in stuff as much as possible. So I will quite happily say to someone, this is what it's going to look like on Android. This is going to look like on iOS. You know, if it's a news app, that that content in the middle can look the same, but your navigation structure, we might have a slide menu on Android. Uh, we might have a tab group on iOS. We might have top tabs using action bar on, on Android, but it's very clear that that's a different thing. And And hopefully, you know, nine times out of 10, if you can get in there quickly with that, you can then drive or help with the, the designer later on so that when they get involved they're not giving you these crazy designs that you can't do um what, what percentage ex- of your clients define the design for you versus you uh, are new to do the design maybe one in ten not many oh, okay uh yeah not many i mean if if they'll either come back to me with wireframes they've already done um or they'll come back to me with some designs and then usually what i'll try and do is look at the designs and go okay this is this is doable but we might have to tweak this or change this or just modify this. And it's all about trying to make my life easier, to be perfectly fair. I want to deliver what they want, but I don't want to suddenly get into a situation where I've got to completely engineer a total user interface that doesn't exist just because the designer wanted their switches to look you know, a certain way. And you know, it's important to do that because as recently as a few years ago, I fell into this mistake with a client. It was the nutrition app that I was building. And the designers had put together a sliding like a ruler for the measurement. So when you went into the screen that said what your height and weight was, you had this sort of slidey ruler that you slid. Um, and it had a, almost like a 3D effect so that as you slid it, it sort of rolled off the screen or whatever. And I, what I should have done at the time is I should have said, 
that's not a very good interface. It's not. It, it, it looks very designery, but it's not a very good interface for a user. Um, and I think we should do it like this instead. You know, keep it simple. Um, looking at other apps that were out there, I didn't do that, and I tried to create this thing, which I managed to do. I managed to create a little widget called Ruler that did this thing. But I was generating all the little ticks on the ruler, you know, ruler with um, with views. <laughs> I was rendering text. I was, and it worked great with one ruler on the screen, but one of the screens needed two, and all of a sudden, the whole thing was appalling in terms of rendering um, because it was trying to render all this, all this, this. It was trying to render this entire ruler out. Right. It was complete. I could have, re- I could have made it a lot better. I could have rendered it as it went and things like that but it just became super complicated and at one point i just said look you know we're hitting these issues because i've got to do this custom ruler thing and he said oh it's fine if you want to do something else then i was like oh great um so i did and went down another route and we came up with a better interface (laughs) a lot of it's yeah educating the client or potential client too on the the cost differences exactly i mean if you want to do this really custom thing because this is exactly how you want it to look Sure, probably anything is possible, but yeah, there's a huge cost difference between doing that and just using the native controls that come on iOS and Android. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because of the time that it costs to develop it. Exactly, and it's and that's been that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to try and there's always exceptions. There's always going to be apps that don't go down that route, and there needs to be a custom element to it. But as 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 far as you can to minimize the amount of custom work that you have to do for clients because if you actually tell them that they will just go okay fine do it like that you know i'm not i'm not precious about that um i want it to look nice uh, but i want it to and i want it to look like an a nice ios app but you know um i i just want something that works and doesn't you know slow the app down or break or whatever um and i've seen examples with apps where I've inherited some from other people where they've gone down that route and literally i mean it got to the point with one of them where they'd actually created a tab group component themselves for ios so they were actually they were actually recreating the entire tab group logic and i think the only reason they were doing it was they wanted a, like a custom font on the labels or something which you can do a much simpler way using a normal tab group um and that was really slowing down the performance of the app to such an extent that um the, the client was like i think we're just going to redo this natively we're just going to scrap it and do it in swift or something um and it took me like a couple of days to sort of strip out that tab group uh, put a normal tab group in, do the adjustments that needed doing. Because it turned out the client wasn't bothered about the font. I mean, I did it anyway, but they weren't bothered about that. But the the the, the developer had clearly gone down that route of going, well, that's what the designer said. That's exactly what they want. Whereas there's usually some flexibility there. Um, especially, like you say, if you go down that route of saying, if I do this, it's going to be more expensive or it's going to be slower. Um, then yeah. you, you can quite but, easily convince somebody. But like you said, even if you do charge more because it's more expensive, you now have to maintain that in your code yeah. through future versions of iOS, future versions versions of Android. And that in itself is going to be difficult as changes are made. So, yeah. Yeah, I, me- I remember. I try to avoid the custom stuff if exactly. possible. Exactly. I remember doing a version of the tab group originally. It was I think I've taken the repo down now. Um, and it only worked. I can't remember the version of the SDK that changed it where you had lightweight windows. And they changed it to get rid of the lightweight windows um, uh, or, or heavyweight window, lightweight window. I can't remember what it was. It was version three yep. or something. And it basically broke the whole thing because you couldn't do these lightweight windows anymore on Android. Um, and so the whole tab group broke. And I managed to get around it now and fix it um, with the new version that I did. But yeah, exactly that sort of thing. Um, as soon as the ta- something happens, 
um, where there's a fundamental change in the SDK or the operating system, then all of a sudden the stuff you've written just doesn't work anymore. And then that's a major, major problem. So, um, yeah, my approach now is, is trying to keep things as simple as I can. I want to write as less, I want to, you know, I don't want to write a lot of JavaScript code. So the less code I can write, the better. Yeah. Um, so if I can, it can do- still be a beautiful app. Yeah, of course. It, without all the custom stuff. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, and, and also, you know, you get something that then looks correct on iOS. It looks correct on iOS. It looks yes. correct on Android. It looks correct on Windows. And like I said, you can still have that content. You can still have your fields or your form elements looking similar. You can still have your content within the screen. Um, you know, if it's layouts of, uh, you know, news articles or things like that, like, like a feed, those sorts of things can still look consistent across those devices. But it's that, it's almost like the, the chrome around the outside is trying to get that right. And so that's, that's one of the key things I do uh, very early on to make sure the clients, it's all about expectations. You don't want to give them yep. an Android build and they go, ah, the tabs are at the top. Can we have them at the bottom? It's like, and then you've got to go through that whole process of explaining it again. It's like, no, we've got to make that clear from the very, very start. Um, so it looks completely natural on Android. It looks completely natural on iOS and you get the best possible performance. Um, from that prototyping thing, what I then do is I, I work on all the styles. So I start to build screens. I start to build the TSS components for all my buttons and fields and everything. Or if I'm using my own library, use that and start laying out real screens and chaining things together. So you've got a login screen. You click login. It goes straight through, shows you a list view using some mock data. Uh, click on one of those, go into the detail view, whatever. And then from there, start to wire up to any API um, that's going on in the background. So you can start getting that stuff working and integrating push and things like that um but i'm still so know, when do you push when you do your prototype like in the actual app how do you what mechanism do you use to deliver to your clients to kind of show them builds uh i've been using so previously i've been using installer app um okay which is which is basically app preview the accelerator platform at preview is a licensed version of that so um it has all the same capabilities and a, and a bit more i think um but that's a, that's a nice way of of getting it out there. I yeah. know there's other solutions like Hockey App and things like that. And obviously, there's Test Flight for iOS. Um, Installer works pretty well for what I do. Um, I've got some scripts that I can build that will generate the apps. I wrote. I've actually got to update it. I wrote an Installer CLI, uh, but I don't think it works. With oh, okay. the, I don't think it works with the latest node, so I need to correct it. And the, the reason I wrote that again was to solve a problem where I didn't want to have to constantly do all the release notes. So I wrote I wrote I wrote a CLI command that basically, if you put the attributes of your app ID from installer into your TI app XML file, um, what it would do is when you said like installer deploy or installer send or whatever the command was, it would um, sort the it would it would run a build of your app. It would well, I think actually I did the build already, so it would it would look in a specific folder. So it would either look in. Uh, your iTunes folder, you know, your mobile apps folder, it would look in a distribution folder within your project. It would it would go through this, these checks or it would look in the current folder or whatever for that file name. Um, so you've already built your app and this is actually deploying it, you know, the IPA file or whatever. Um, and then what oh, it would, nice. But then what it would do is if you did it within the repo, the idea was it would then check Git to get the Git log. Uh, it would get like a, a shortened Git log of the last changes between this build and the last build that was in installer. So it checks installer, gets the app, works out the last date, does a git difference to say what's the difference between that date and this difference, summarizes that down into a bullet point list and adds that to the release notes. 
So as long as you, <laughs> I guess you have to be careful with your commitments. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's the only thing. So, so if you do sort of stuff like you know remove white space and stuff, it's going to look a bit weird. Um, but but it would do that initial thing for you. So it would either do it so it would do that and then send it, or it would do it and upload it, and then you could just go to the installer site and quickly you know change the tweak the release notes or whatever and send it. Um, but that's yeah, I, I like all that stuff. I mean, I, I, the over the air stuff's really cool. Um, and I know App Preview does the same thing. So it's, it's a really nice way of sort of sending your, your versions of your app out to people. Um, uh, the, uh, the only thing I find is just managing clients to make sure they don't, you have to tick the box to say install on one device before they start, you know, you get one person that goes and installs it on five different devices and uses up all the installs, uh, which is quite interesting. <laughs> what do you use? Um, I've used a lot of different things. I mean, I've, I've tried installer before um, and, Lately, I've been using Hockey App a lot. Um, okay. Uh, it seems to work well. There's a lot of features, and a lot's changed since Microsoft bought it, and they've had a lot. And I do the same kind of thing with the release. Well, I don't. I don't go getting. I don't get to get commit messages, but I, I modify like a grunt task or something to go look for a markdown file because oh, it takes cool. markdown. So, and it goes and gets that and just includes that as the release notes for that build and then hockey app kind of sends it out to everybody. But, um, it seems to be a, an affordable product for, I don't have to worry about how many installs it's more you pay per app, I believe. Okay. So, um, depending on how many apps or whatever I have, then you just, you pay that. And then as many people as you want to can install it. Yeah, that's cool. But I know that there was a, there's hockey app also does a lot of extra stuff. And I know, um, Adam created, uh, the wrapper for the, some of the SDK, um, to be able to do like the crash detection and oh, some cool. of the other stuff that hockey app does as well. Yeah. That's nice. I know that the, the worst thing for me, I need to play around with fast lane. Um, I sort of did play around with it. And, the, uh, one of the, one of the developers did, um, one of the community did TI fast lane. Um, have you ever used Fastlane? Ever played with that? I have. I've used it. Now it's grown a lot and there's a lot of different components of it, but I, I've used different parts of it before TI Fastlane existed, but that I want to get back into using that again. Cause yeah, I, I love automation. If there's something can be automated, especially if you have a lot of apps or something, then you can it takes a lot less of your time than time is money. Yeah. Cause you get down. To, I mean, the worst thing is when you get down to the fact where it's like, okay, the app's ready to build and then you've got a, it's ready to publish, and then you've got to go into iTunes Connect. You've got to create the records. You've got to take the screenshots. You know, you end up doing the five point five screenshots and downsizing them, and then you've got to do the iPad screenshots, and then you've got to do the whole thing again in Android. And it would be quite cool if I could get that down, so that I've got that. I've got, a, I've got a nice. I finally got round to writing a nice little script to start an app, so that you know, when I um, when I've got a new app to build, I can just run this create app script. I give it a, an app name, and it will create me a project with the app ID. It will um, copy in sim links for all the libraries that I normally use, like Resty or whatever. Um, so it will it will it will take a sim link that exists already in a sort of template project and copy that all out. It will create it will initialize a Git um, Git repo. Um, I could probably even do an initial commit or something. It will copy across the ignore the Git ignore entries. So it sort of sets all that up and then it will open it in Atom at the moment and it will launch the project in the simulator. So I could just literally say. You know, create app, test app, and bang, it's done and it launches. And then from there, I can modify That's it. That's nice. But it would be nice if I could do stuff like, 
Uh, you know, that would create a provision, uh, an app ID in the portal, in the Apple portal, it would create a provisioning profile, um, you know, all those things so that it would it, uh, create a, an entry in App Builder or um, uh, in um, uh, App Preview or Installer so that the, the entry is already there. So, you know, all these things would be ready and then the Fastlane stuff would be really cool um, just, to, just to smooth that process because the whole provisioning stuff can be a nightmare sometimes, well, all the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> and then having to do it all on Google Play. God. Uh, uh, anything else you want to talk about? Oh, I'm sure there's more, but... We can um, save it for another time. Yeah, we could probably save it, but I can go on. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty good. We can always uh, talk about it if we continue doing this into the next episode. Um, so if you're listening, thanks for joining and uh, tune in next time.